This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. While I don't think he invented this saying, my dad is fond of saying there are two kinds of people, those who live to eat and those who eat to live. I personally find myself firmly in the live to eat category. The act of eating, especially eating something new or unfamiliar, is such a wonderful multi-sensory experience. Speaking honestly though, my love of cuisine pales in comparison to this week's teller, Aimee Tins. In this episode's story, Aimee shares how the desire to craft a meal for a loved one has led to a statistically improbable string of calamities. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in June 2018, Second Story is proud to present Fortune Favors the Cook. She held my hand in hers, tracing the interlocking lines, head and heart, that spread across my right palm, a chain split in half by the diagonal slash of my fate line. Her index finger paused at their intersection, the afternoon sun filtering through the gauzy curtains to refract from her rings and crystals. The cozy studio felt like an island entirely separate from the street festival where we had just met. Look, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. My mother's been doing this for decades. It is not worth our reputation for me to ever lie to you. I'm going to say things you won't want to hear, but I have to be honest. I smiled at the fortune teller. I could handle it. I'm sorry to say this, but you're cursed. (laughs) What does it say about me that I found this statement from a woman I had just met oddly comforting? I wanted it to be true, not because I was two weeks out from breaking up with Alex, who I was still in love with, but because I had been convinced for years that I was actually cursed. (laughs) Not in a life-threatening, you must die to save the world from you know who kind of way, something much more mundane. However, I didn't want to show my hand too soon. When I see fortune tellers, I offer as little detail as possible to test their skills and determine if they are truly attuned to the powers that be, or merely charlatans with a remarkable talent for reading their clients. This curse you have, curse is an old word. Let's call it a block. It was placed on your parents by a woman on your father's side who didn't want them to be married. Knowing my aunt, I was completely unsurprised. (laughs) But it affects their children. I look at you and I can tell you, you have nothing to worry about for your health, your career, I like this, but your relationships? Well, you know you've been disowned by your family. You'll have some friends who can't handle your success and many great friends in your life, but love? That's where this curse will affect you most. And that, folks, was all my incredibly superstitious self needed to validate one of my life truths, the dinner curse. Now, for the skeptics in the crowd, let me explain the parameters. The dinner curse meant that any time a romantic partner made a verbal offer to cook me a meal, two things would inevitably happen. (laughs) 
One, this date would never fully occur. Two, we would break up. Now you may say, I mean, this could have only happened a few times. That's not statistically significant. But let me lay it out for you. I've dated a lot of people. Carry the four and add the five, and well, let's just say that number is somewhere north of 200 and south of 750, depending on your standards for measurement. And of the dozens who have offered to make me dinner, only a single soul has come close. She would surprise me with a dessert or do an excellent job of assembling leftovers, but never actually conceived and made me a meal. The rest? Well, they haven't made it to the appetizer, let alone the dessert. The gas would be out. They'd had to work late. In one instance, once I arrived, I found my partner sheepishly standing in front of their kitchen island, ready to confess to me that their roommate had eaten all of the ingredients for dinner while he was high. <laughs> when a woman I was dating, let's call her the uh, anthropologist, suggested making me dinner, I remember her commenting on my skeptical eyebrow raise. What? Just because you cook all the time doesn't mean I don't know how to. She didn't. But I thought it was sweet that she wanted to try, even after I told her of the second consequence of the curse. I knew it was too late, but maybe she could do it. When the day arrived, I heard the familiar thump and creak of her steps on my stairs, and I opened the doors with a silly grin on my face. Not only was she planning to cook for me, this Greek Native American woman was planning to cook Vietnamese food. She wanted to prove herself to me, her A-type personality, driving her to measure up to my 20-plus course meals and my preference for cooking from scratch. She arrived bearing bags full of ingredients from the motherland, fish sauce, mint, basil, rice noodles, for her spin on boondock beets, a dish that, when done right, leaves the perfect balance of sweet, savory, acidic, and tart on the tongue. She tossed her dark waves into a bun, wrapped an apron around her waist, and shooed me out of my kitchen. Less than five minutes later, I heard a string of cursing in three or four different languages, Greek, Thai, English, Vietnamese, I left my living room and walked down my narrow hallway hoping she hadn't burned a pan, or worse, herself. What's up, I said, as I popped my head into the kitchen, tucking a loose tendril of hair behind her ear. I left the bag of proteins on the bus, all the pork and chicken. The anthropologist sighed, her frustration evident in the thinning line of her lips. It's okay, you always have food, I'll make do. She swiveled towards my fridge, her arm extended. Um, I actually need to go grocery shopping. Her arm fell to her side. She stared. Are you serious, Amy? I told you the dinner curse. She pressed her fingers against my mouth and said, no, I'm doing this, you are too superstitious, it's not cute anymore. As she continued berating me, the smoke detector interrupted. She had set one of my kitchen towels on fire. We ordered Harold's. <laughs> Shortly after, we broke up. I didn't tell the fortune teller any of this because I could hear the anthropologist in my head, 
her well-worn arguments about self-fulfilling prophecies and how my lack of expectations in my partners reinforced my lack of faith in them. While the fortune teller obviously had a grasp of my personality, she wasn't playing therapist. Honestly, considering she told me the specifics of my disowning, my career shifts, and recent travels, she probably already knew. Just like she probably already knew that cooking for a partner was a blend of affection and pride, a promise that I was and would continue listening. Who wouldn't enjoy a partner whose stress relief activity was feeding others? I live for that look of pleasure in my partner's eyes, that mm, that travels from their stomachs to rumble in their chest. Their satisfaction is the cherry on top to my self-care. I don't expect a similar expression from my partners because they might not demonstrate their affections with personalized acts of service. It's unfair to place the specific dating ethics I practice on another. Was my lack of expectations a problem? By not offering a standard, was I, as the anthropologist still says to me, hamstringing all of my relationships? Was I the harbinger of the dinner curse? Instead of revealing my mental melodrama, I said, tell me more, buying myself time. This is why your past reappears in your life, why old lovers find you. This block makes it so you can't have lasting love. Can't have lasting love. The dinner curse guaranteed that every romance had an expiration date because in any relationship where one person cooks, the other will inevitably bring up returning the favor. And then, well, you know the rules, it's all over. Which isn't always a bad thing. Sure, I may have a commitment issue or two, but uh, most relationships are finite meant to be enjoyed for a specific period of time and then laid to rest without regret or hunger for second helpings. Sometimes though, the server takes away your plate before you're finished. Remember Alex, who I had just broken up with? Victim of the dinner curse. We were curled up together, warm and full, pressing kisses against lips and exposed skin. I saw the affection and gratitude in her eyes, and I knew she was about to invoke the dinner curse. I internally panicked, quietly and rapidly considering my best options, distract with a story, kiss her until she forgets her own name, if I could just stop her from saying it. Maybe it wouldn't have to end. Maybe we could just be here together. I leaned in, and she said, I want to make you dinner later this week. I sighed and smiled. That sounds great. Because what else could I do but enjoy her to the bitter, bitter end, an end that would leave both of us yearning for another taste? The fortune teller said, what you need is a cleansing, something to remove this block. She stared into my eyes. It's not your fault. Oh. If she was right, why didn't I feel absolution? Wasn't I chasing that in every dish, finding clarity at the bottom of a mixing bowl? Every perfected recipe a challenge, the balance of flavors a test of my palate and intuition. 
I could make a multi-course meal tailored to anyone's taste. So why was it so hard for someone to figure out mine? I can help you, she said. We can remove it for an additional fee. <laughs> of course, I thought. She must have read the stubborn set of my shoulders. I know you are very independent, but it would be easier this way. She handed me her card. If you change your mind, give me a call. I think we'll see each other again. It's been over two years since that day, and no one has cracked the curse. But I still haven't called. I'm not sure that she can undo the curse, disrupt a lifetime's worth of ingrained behavior and statistical truth. It feels too easy, something store-bought instead of homemade. It's the work that makes the reward sweet, the flavor something to savor. I will work on me. I could stuff another thousand dumplings and I can wait for that curse breaker. In the meantime, there's something simmering on the stove. This story was produced by Gracie Meyer, curated by Amanda Delheimer, and directed by Chris Thorin, with music and sound design by Allison Hines. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, Jeffrey and Joan Goldwater, Katie and Peter Hauser, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this... This, this is... The Second, Second Story Podcast.